Well, good evening. It's a joy to be here with you and just humbled and grateful to the elders of this church and to this church in general for the opportunity to bring to you the word of God this evening. I would like to begin in a word of prayer, so if you don't mind bowing your heads, closing your eyes with me, and going to our Lord. You are the Holy One, O God, as we have just sung, and we want to come and behold you, Lord. We want to come and behold you in your word. God, please renew our minds as you speak to us through your word, Lord, that we would be more conformed to the likeness of Christ, to see the Holy One who has given his Son an amazing grace. Lord, we pray that this time now will be glorifying to you. Help me now by the power of your Spirit to bring forth your word and to proclaim it with all boldness and power. May us as your people hear it and go out and live in obedience to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you would, open up with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. As I was walking out of church this morning, I have to admit I was a little bit discouraged. Um, I was looking at my wife and I told her, Pastor Tom just stole my thunder tonight. He, he just preached my message. And to which my wife looked at me and she wisely said, we need it more, so go ahead and preach it again. So... Now, we, um, what we looked at this morning was the theological foundation of the gospel of the grace of God. And what we're going to do tonight is look at that in a, as the Old Testament scriptures call him, one of the most heinous men of the Old Testament. And God's grace at work in this man. If you're jotting down a title tonight, you can go ahead and write a biography of amazing grace. A biography of of amazing grace. The world welcomed John Newton, the author of America's most beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, on July 24th, 1725. He was born to a godly mother who loved him dearly and taught Newton much about the scriptures. Sadly, though, his mother died when he was quite young. He was only the age of six, leaving him in the hands of his seafaring father, a man who neither feared God nor respected men nor even cared really for Newton. And after sailing many voyages in his early teens, Newton was forcibly thrust into the life of a full-time sailor at the age of 18. During this time, he says that he gave himself over to all matters of iniquity. He became a rebel, a deserter, arrogant, insubordinate, living with complete moral abandonment. His memoirs read, quote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, no, so far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. Another place he adds, quote, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. The consequences of his sin soon began to catch up after having joined and taking employment with a slave trader off the coast of West Africa. Newton was mistreated severely by his captain. He was hated by the captain's wife and eventually he was reduced to a slave-like status himself. However, it was here in the, in the bleakness of Newton's life that God began to reveal amazing grace. By an act of God's providence, a British ship came ashore on the, on the very island where Newton was in bondage. And it just so happened that the captain of that ship knew Newton's father. And so he was able to work out in order to release Newton from his imprisonment. And it just so happened that on the ship that Newton now boarded, as he was going home, that a violent tempest sprang up, sweeping over the craft. And as the ship was tottered back and forth like a little toy boat, in the midst of Newton's great distress, he cried out to God to show him mercy. For 20 hours, the sailors worked to save both their lives and the ship. And it was during those long, grueling hours that Newton began to reflect upon his spiritual condition. He writes that he knew he could utter no prayer of faith because he had none. He could not draw near to God because he knew he was not reconciled to God. 
And as soon as the, the storm passed and they were safe, Newton went immediately to the only place where he could find refuge and hope. He went to the word of God. And for two weeks, Newton prayed over and read the scriptures. And after a, a pit stop in Ireland and another violent storm, Newton found that he was returning home a changed man. He writes, quote, I stood in need of an almighty savior and such a one I found described in the New Testament. Thus far, the Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I was a new man. He who was lost had been found. He who was blind now saw. That is God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace that the holy God would save sinners. The holy God who has shown you amazing grace if you stand here forgiven in Christ this evening. As we turn to think upon our text, the glorious reality of God's grace to sinners really stands at the heart of the passage that we're looking at this evening. In fact, what we find here in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 is a, is a conversion so, so shocking, so dramatic, that some commentators have said that apart from Saul of Tarsus, no other conversion story compares with it in all of Scripture. When one studies the life of King Manasseh, what we find is truly a biography of amazing grace. Now, as we begin, it's critical that we understand the contextual lay of the land, and all the more so since First and Second Chronicles have long stood as the most neglected and misunderstood books in all of the Old Testament, if not all of Scripture. And as you peer into the depths of Chronicles, as you look into the indescribable riches in these books, what you find is, is really a treasure trove of hope. Hope, as, as Tom Schreiner writes, quote, Chronicles is fundamentally a book about hope. And for that reason, we could say that the theme, the, the aim, the message of the book is really all about the God who restores hope. God who gave hope to his returning exiles as they resettled in the land and hope for us today. And so how, you may ask, how does the narrator go about giving us hope in the book of Chronicles? How does he spark hope in our life? Well, he does so by focusing on three major themes. And we can see that they're woven in and out of these two books. We see first, God has chosen a people. See in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 through chapter 9, that God has chosen Israel. He has chosen Judah to be his people from among the peoples of the earth. Second, God has chosen a house. Namely, he has chosen the house of David. See that in 1 Chronicles 10 through 29. And he has chosen the house of the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 1 through chapter 9. But thirdly, God has chosen a response. How will his people respond to him? And that's where we find ourselves this evening. In 2 Chronicles 10 through 36, we see the third major theme, the third major section of the book. Now, summed up, what is God's response? How would he want his people to live for him? Well, he sums that up for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 22. We don't have time to turn there this evening. But there, we really see the paradigm, the key verses for what the rest of the book is to be about. That there, God calls his people to respond to him rightly. That is, he calls his people to humble repentance and a genuine seeking after God. As one continues from chapter 10 onward, we just really see that theme continuing to go on and on. The narrator cannot help but keep drawing our attention back to what our response is to be. In fact, what he does here is something rather unique. He writes so as to lift up each consecutive king and his reign as something to be examined. I mean, you can think of it like this. It's a shelf of consecutive biographies in which each king will come and go. His response and how he lived his life will be revealed, and it will be shown whether he sought after God or did he forsake God. And in turn, then, the author is exhorting his reader to reflect and respond. Either imitate that king and seek God, or ignore that king and don't forsake God like he did. Concerning this point, R.K. Duke writes, quote, 
The chronicler portrays the generation of each Davidic king as a separate vignette. Each king and his people have their own story, whether it be to rise by seeking Yahweh or to fall by forsaking Yahweh. As a result, the message that is communicated is that each generation was accountable for its own righteousness and sin. Each generation determined its own fate. They, his immediate audience, had to determine whether they would be the ones who would seek Yahweh or forsake him. Close quote. So with that, we come then, how does this chapter, this king, fit into the narrative of Chronicles? Well, the biography of Manasseh recounts for post-exilic Israel the, the depths of God's amazing grace. God graciously forgives even the worst of sinners who would humbly repent and turn to him. That would have been an encouragement. It would have given such hope to God's people as they saw that. But at the same time, it, prov- it provided the much-needed exhortation to call the nation to forsake their sin and turn back to God. The same is true for us today. In this text, we witness the fundamental reality that God graciously forgives anyone who humbly turns from their sins and follows him alone as Lord. The same God who demonstrated grace to Manasseh is the same God that can show you grace today. Your life, too, can be a biography of amazing grace in and through his perfect son. This biography of God's amazing grace unfolds in six captivating chapters. Six captivating chapters. We begin here in chapter one with the need for grace. The need for grace. That falls from verse one all the way down through verse 10. Scripture forthrightly explains that while we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, hostile to God, alienated from the righteousness of God, We are all beings in need of divine grace, and nothing could be truer than of Manasseh. The majority of his tenure could be described as the most gross, heinous, and unparalleled rebellion of all the kings of the southern tribes of Judah. His rebellion is so profound, one commentator notes, I love this. He says, quote, If Manasseh had searched the scriptures for practices that would most anger the Lord, and then intentionally committed them, he could not have achieved that result any more effectively than he did. It's as if Manasseh looked in God's law, not not to figure out how he could obey God's law, but as if he could say, okay, what did God say to not do this? Okay, I'm going to do that. Idolatry? Oh yeah, I'm going to do that. Child sacrifice? Yep, check it off the list. Witchcraft? Ah, that's no big deal for me. We see that Manasseh truly surpasses other kings in the depths of his iniquity. And we see that he is a man desperately in need of grace. We see that in four areas. Four areas that highlight Manasseh's need for grace. First, we see his prodigal heart in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. It's important that we remember Manasseh's background. He enjoyed having as his father, Hezekiah. And we know that Hezekiah was one of the most righteous men and kings in all of Judah. And so one can only surmise that during his life, he would have heard about his father's cleansing of the temple. He would have heard and seen the restoration of the people back to faithful worship. He would have seen the reforms in action and been instructed in the ways of the Lord. And yet despite all that he was exposed to, the fertile soil that he was nurtured in, ultimately Manasseh turned away. Like the prodigal son of Luke 15, Manasseh rebelled against his godly upbringing. His rebellion flowed from a prodigal heart. But secondly, the second area we see is not only his prodigal heart, but his personal evil. In verses 2 all the way down through verse 8, we see this. Follow along in verse 2. The narrator narrator says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is, he abandoned, he spurned the Lord his God. And notice what is the comparison here. He did this according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. A man who was to represent God's people 
right? God's people who were to mediate blessing to the nations, the, the people who were to model before the nations what faithful covenant worship looked like under the good sovereign hand of God. This man chose to turn his nose up to that, to, to instead follow after the nations, the very nations whose moral and spiritual atrocities had enraged God. He would rather chase after the abominations of those who were annihilated and have been driven out of the land. How foolish, right? How foolish is Manasseh, but we are also cut from the same cloth, right? How often do we find ourselves walking after the ways of this world, longing for its delicacies rather than following after Christ? Verse 3 continues to go on and we see then that the author is going to record for us a list of his evils. And as we begin, we're going to see that his transgressions are going to begin to start stacking one on top of the other. It's as if his evil is going to continue to build and build and build until we get to verse 7 and we see the climax of it all. And during that time, the narrator is going to contrast what Manasseh is going to do compared to what God has promised already which then highlights that Manasseh's evils are all the more flagrant in light of God's kindness. Verse 3, it says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. It's interesting to note that the term therefore rebuilt is the same Hebrew word for which we get the word to turn away or to repent. In other words, what Manasseh is doing here is an about face. All right, he is turning from, he's repenting in a way, from the godly direction of which his father had gone and which he had led the nation. He purposefully reverses all the positive gains that his father had made. The high places and the altars that his father had destroyed, Manasseh now is going to build back up. The temple which had been cleansed and reestablished is now made into an idol's house. Manasseh in essence, is tearing the very fabric of who Judah was supposed to be. That they were supposed to be the people of God who worshipped him in covenant faithfulness. They were to be the people of God who worshipped God as he prescribed, not as how Manasseh or the peoples or the nations prescribed. It's as if Manasseh took everything and he just said, whoop, right out the window. We don't need that. So then he rebuilt the high places. Now, the, the high places are the first stop shop for religious idolatry. As the term indicates, a high place was an elevated site. You could find them on mountains, on hills, on top of city gates. They were on raised platforms and, and valleys. And it was in this raised environment that the worshiper felt that he was more closely connected to his gods. Requirements for the high places included an altar of uncut stone so that animals could be sacrificed and then offered by fire. Most often there was a stone pillar of some kind or uh, a wooden pole or a tree that was set in place to, to mark this as a place of pagan worship and also as an object of veneration. And so you can see the religious hazard, right, that is being placed upon God's people here. That these high places were snares, places where God's people would turn away from the true worship of the Lord and into gross idolatry. Therefore, as one commentator notes, the high places became, quote, a litmus test for the religious fidelity of a given king. As we see here, Manasseh failed awfully. Notice he didn't just build one high place, but he built high places, plural, in fact, the text continues to go on to say that he made Baals, he made Asherim, he made all the hosts of heaven, he built altars, plural, in the house of the Lord. He made his sons, plural, pass through the fire. We see that his sin is being multiplied all the more, not just one, but rather many. And the author is highlighting for us just the depth, the depth of his sin and the, the widespread idolatry that Manasseh had produced. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 8 says that when Josiah comes on the scene, he broke down the high places which, had, um, which Manasseh had set up. And uh, he says it broke down the high places that were set up all the way from Geba all the way down to Bathsheba. That is from the northernmost limit of Judah 
all the way down to its southern border. Manasseh had littered the land with his pagan idolatry. Verse 3 continues to go on. It says that he also erected altars for the Baals, and he made the ashram, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Now Baal and Asherah worshipped went hand in hand. Right? They were a detestable act of, of idol worship that had become so alluring for God's people because of its sensual nature. The Canaanites originally taught that the local Baals controlled fertility in agriculture and in um, animals and mankind. It was assumed that, that Baal was the one who brought the needed storms for their arid climate. Baal was the one who would bring them children and therefore it was Baal who they needed to appease. And how did you appease Baal along with his Asherah? Well, through sickening, perverse acts of sexual prostitution and child sacrifice. That's what Manasseh was rebuilding in the land. But that's not enough for him. No, no, not at all. No, he needed to multiply his idolatry even further. It says he also worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Sun, moon, stars, the very celestial beings that God created, Manasseh fell down and worshiped. You get a sense of this hideous practice in Ezekiel chapter 8. There we see 25 men bowing their heads down towards the east, worshiping the sun as it raised, as that was raising up, all the while sitting at the entrance of the altar with their backs turned to God. That is, their backs were turned to the holy presence of God whose blazing glory far outshined the sun, making it look like a child's flashlight. They would choose that rather than God. So Baal, Asherah, sun, moon, stars, on the words of Ezekiel chapter 8, though, we see even greater abominations than these. We see in verses 4 through 5 that Manasseh now begins to attack the very presence of God himself. Look at verse 4. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. These foreign deities, right? These productions of men's hands, the inventions of depraved hearts, Manasseh now brought into the very heart of Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem, the place where God has said his name, the place where God had said he would dwell with his people forever. Manasseh is conducting a full-out assault on the holiness of God. In a sense, then, we can see Manasseh saying, okay, God, I'm coming into your house. Move out of the way. Get off of your seat. We have new guests coming in. We would now rather exchange you, the sovereign, omnipotent God, who when he speaks, mountains quake. We would rather have deaf, blind, and lame idols sitting on your couch, in your house, in your place, ruling over us. So then we see he sets up altars, again plural, to offer his abominable sacrifices in both courts. This would have been in the inner or upper courtyard where the priests were to offer legitimate sacrifices upon the bronze altar to the Lord. And this would have been the, the outer or great courtyard which surrounded both the temple complex and Solomon's palace. But we see that the narrative is going to continue to to build up steam. This is not enough for him. We go to verse 6. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom functioned as one of the centers of deviant worship at that time. This place was notable for the most grotesque acts of pagan worship. Now there, Manasseh would have sacrificed firstborn sons. Again, plural and he would have taken them and he would have stood there before this sea, this raging fire of, of the sea of flames. And he would, in order to appease his gods, throw them into the flames, thus sacrificing his sons. Now, he's not done with that. No, and we see continuing on in verse 6, he, he practiced witchcraft. He used divination he practiced sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and spiritists. 
I mean, you name the forbidden sin here, and Manasseh did it. And what does it say at the end of verse 6? He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Notice, not just evil, right? He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. His atrocities provoked, that is, they stirred up the righteous wrath and jealousy of God as a storm does a raging sea. But then we come to verse 7, and we come to the, the climax of his personal evil and rebellion. It says, verse 7, then... Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God. This is really the unthinkable in the mind of the narrator. Manasseh goes beyond all else of what he has done up to this point by defiling the very heart of God himself. He entered the holy of holies and put an idol in the very place where God had put his name forever. 2 Kings 21 tells us what this idol was. It was an idol of Asherah. Asherah, as you may know, was um, considered to be a consort, a sexual partner to other foreign deities. Archaeological discoveries have found sites pinpointing back to the time of Manasseh, in which inscriptions were found that read this, quote, Yahweh in his Asherah, were worshipped here. So we see then what Manasseh is doing is really unthinkable as he is blending and mixing the one true worship of God with idolatry. He had brought in Asherah to, to sexually serve Yahweh. As a result, he then attempted to reduce the only holy God to just another perverted, immoral God among the grotesque pantheon of the nation's idols. The severity of his sin is contrasted then with what the author goes on to say in the rest of verses 7 and 8. He said he did this in the house of God. Which house of God? The very house of God of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. If only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes and the ordinances given through Moses. This is the place where God has set his name forever. This is the place in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 where God descended in the cloud of glory. Where in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. This is where God was supposed to dwell. And Manasseh said, get off your throne, God. Let me set up my idols instead. He treated God as if he was nothing. That was his personal rebellion. We see a third area, a third form of his need for grace. Not only did he do this personally, but we also see his public delusion. His public delusion in verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. And this is Manasseh, right? This is the king of Judah. The king of Judah who was supposed to be the, the shepherd king of God's people. He was supposed to be the under shepherd of the great high shepherd, the great shepherd king, Yahweh himself. And yet he was the one leading the people astray. He was the one deluding them, seducing them to drink from the broken cisterns of false worship. And how far downward was he leading them? What does the verse say there in verse 9? He says, not that they were just doing evil, not that they were just doing much evil, but they were doing more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. This man's sin has now surpassed the height of all else. But we're not done yet. We come to a fourth area. A fourth area showing his need for divine grace. His proud disregard. His proud disregard. Look with me at verse 10. Maybe you're 
at this time, you're saying, well, where is God in all of this? What is God doing about this wicked man upon this throne? We see God is speaking. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. That while this is going on, God is graciously speaking and pleading and urging through his prophets, telling Manasseh and the people to turn, to humble themselves, to repent, to cry out to God and receive his grace, to, to flee the wrath that is to come, turn from their wicked ways. Reminds us of the book of Revelation as we've been going through it, right? As God's been merciful, mercifully calling out to those in the tribulation, telling them to flee, we see that God was doing it all the way back in Manasseh's day. And how did they respond? What did they do? What was their reaction to God graciously speaking to them his word? Verse 10, but they paid no attention. They paid no attention. They purposefully in their pride disregarded the word of God. They stopped their ears. They hardened their hearts. They shunned the prophetic word. And thus we see this is the ultimate rebellion, right? This is the last straw. This is the final nail in the coffin. For as long as God is speaking and as long as someone is willing to hear the word of God, there is hope. But this man has closed his heart. Not only that, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16 adds that not only did he not pay attention, but he also, quote, shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Many of the commentators, they would agree that this is a, uh, a reference to his violent treatment of the prophets, that he had filled Jerusalem's streets with the blood of God's messengers, Extra biblical witness also makes mention that Manasseh himself is the one who sawed the prophet Isaiah in half as the prophet hid in a hollow log trying to escape this blood-raged ruler. That's the, the unparalleled rebellion of Judah's most wicked man. A life full of idolatry, of bloodshed, and the most heinous pride a man in need of divine grace. But can I not pause here and implore you to understand your own present predicament? No, you may not come in here having bowed down to Baal today. No, no, you may not have offered your child in sacrifice today or killed a prophet or a messenger today. But understand that your sins are still just as heinous and just as offensive in the sight of a holy God. The idols of your heart, whether they be money or power or sex or control or comfort or whatever it may be, are just as provoking to our holy God, worthy of just as much eternal damnation as those of Manasseh. Every sinful word, every sinful deed, every sinful attitude. You and I are both wretches in need of divine grace. That brings us into chapter 2, the catalyst for grace. The catalyst for grace, what has been hinted at now comes to pass because of his repeated moral and spiritual failures, because of his faithless shepherding, because of his refusal to pay attention to the word of God, we see the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 fall down upon this man. Verse 11, therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. The Lord uses his rod of divine chastisement to catalyze for Manasseh, that is to steer for him off of the path of destruction and back onto the path of life. God graciously uses the means of the king of Assyria to do this for him. Now at this point, in history, Judah was in subjection to Assyria. Manasseh was a vassal king. He had to do as Assyria told him. And many Old Testament historians point out that most likely what we see here in this verse happened sometime between 652 and 648 BC. That would have been the very end of Manasseh's life and reign. It was at that point that Babylon and Assyria got into a civil war with each other. And for four years, Babylon duked it out with Assyria trying to gain independence. And so most would agree and argue that it was during this time that Manasseh had chosen sides with Babylon, 
trying to get the collar of Assyria off of his neck. But Assyria won. They took over control, and so they did what they did. They went down and they punished this man who had chosen sides with the wrong crowd. And so Assyria came, and we see that they took, that is, they captured Manasseh with hooks. A word for capture has animal imagery to it. It's often used as the word for capturing or trapping an animal out as you're hunting. It speaks of a, ensnaring a bird in a trap. And they captured him with hooks. That is, a hook refers to a, a metal hook, one that you might you know, put through a, a fish to string him through the gill, or even better, a, a metal ring that you would put into uh, somebody's nose or put into a, a lip of an animal or a person in order to, to get that animal or person under control. And we actually see ancient depictions of Assyria doing that as they have got this chain pulling captors through hooks on their noses, on their lips, dragging them along. And so we can picture here then Manasseh in utter humiliation as he's been taken captured uh, by the Assyrians. He's got a hook through his nose or a hook through his lips. He's bound with bronze chains. Uh, he has fetters and manacles upon him and they're treating him as if he is some unmanageable beast, one fit for only the lowliest of, of treatment, a political prisoner of the Assyrian state. And finally, the text notes, though, that they took him to Babylon there at the end of verse 11. And that's the, the epitome of the divine curses, that, that now Manasseh is out of the promised land. And in all reality, Manasseh is separated from God, he, he is outside now of the covenant promises. He is without hope in this world is what it would look like. And so we would expect the narrative to be over. All right, We would expect for there to be a final statement at this point that says, and Manasseh went to Assyria and Manasseh died justly suffering the consequences of his sins. Right? That's what we think should happen. That's what we expect to happen. But verse 11 is not the end of the story. In fact, it's just the beginning of the story. Because in an unfathomable demonstration of God's amazing grace, we come to chapter 3 of this biography. And that's the plea for grace in verse 12. The plea for grace. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Like John Newton, who had cried out in his distress at the bottom of a sinking ship, so now Manasseh is crying out as he is sinking in his distress. A term for distress refers to something being pushed hard from the outside. It refers to any kind of restricting or claustrophobic experience. We see it in context of armies when they're laying siege to cities. It's used of the psalmist in the Psalms as they're crying out to God in the midst of their troubles as they have gripped them and put them in great distress. And so we see it, it was here when Manasseh was at rock bottom, as if he is going to be crushed under the weight of God's divine reproof. Manasseh finally lays down his arms. He takes out the white flag and begins to wave the white flag of surrender. The verse says that he humbles himself greatly before the God of his fathers. In fact, it says that he entreated the Lord his God. That's a term which signifies desperation of reverence. Manasseh saw that the gods that he had trusted in were not the gods that could save him. And he realized that the word he had previously disregarded, that the word that had been preached to him by his godly father, the word that had been preached to him by the prophets, was true. And we see at this moment, the scales are falling from his eyes. The dungeon of his soul is flaming with light. Finally, he saw that his greatest distress was not his present distress in Assyria and Babylon. No, his greatest distress, far eternally distressing, is that he stood under the wrath and the curse of God. So he entreats the God of his fathers, the God who is slow to anger, who is compassionate and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. 
He, he calls out to God in prayer. And he says, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, O God. And in utter brokenness, he falls down before God in humility. And how does God respond? How does God respond when Manasseh humbles himself and entreats his face? We see verse 13, chapter 4 of this biography, and that's the bestowal of grace. The bestowal of grace. Verse 13, when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is mind-blowing. I mean, this is unfathomable, right? God, God is moved as he sees Manasseh's repentant heart and he, he receives him with, with favor. He bestows upon the most wicked of men, the, most, the chief of sinners, shows him divine grace, pardons his iniquity. He credits to him righteousness. He sets him apart now as one of his redeemed. Manasseh, the unparalleled sinner, was now a trophy of God's grace. Not only does he hear Manasseh and forgive, he goes beyond that. He mercifully restores Manasseh, the verse tells us. That is, he sets him back up fully into his previous position. Reminds us a lot of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, does it not? And what does the verse say, verse 13 at the end? After all this, after God's gracious act to fully restore Manasseh again to his kingdom in Jerusalem, we read this. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He had experienced the complete and utter restoration of a gracious God. His sins were washed, his life renewed. Friends, do you come here today doubting whether or not that God can still be moved today? Perhaps you come here thinking that your distress is too great. Maybe you think that your sins are too many. Maybe you think that, that God can't be gracious enough to forgive me for all that I have done. If that is you then, like Manasseh, you need to turn your eyes to God. In fact, you need to turn your eyes to the cross. That there the blood of the lamb was spilt. There Christ hung under the full weight of the wrath and divine curse of God. There Christ was distressed in our place. There God demonstrates his grace Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Friend, what can wash away the stain of your sin? Look, look. There is flowing a crimson tide brighter than snow you may be today. You must humble yourself. Lay down your life. Surrender the white flag and entreat the Lord your God just as Manasseh did crying out to God to be merciful to you, to be gracious to you. And God will hear your supplication and God will answer. And church, right, if we stand here today forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ and we know that this is true of our lives today, that we have received the grace of God in our lives and we have 10,000 reasons and forevermore to praise our God for we were just like Manasseh dead in our sins and trespasses but God has forgiven us all glory be to God all glory be to God this biography is not over yet though we have chapter 5 chapter 5 in verses 14 through 17 we see the fruit of grace the fruit of grace. Manasseh was no foxhole-only convert, right? When the bullets were flying, uh, that wasn't the only time that he turned to God. But rather, when he was back in his comfort, even back restored, he shows the fruit of a changed, renewed heart. The fruits of grace in keeping with repentance. We see in verse 14 that he begins with political reforms. After this, he had built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon. In the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate, he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. That is a, 
Previously, right, we had seen Manasseh bringing in these false idols. We had seen Manasseh doing to Jerusalem what would put her in utter danger, what would have caused her to come under the wrath of God. And now Manasseh is working not for uh, Jerusalem's um, consequence, not for Jerusalem's punishment, but rather for their building up. He is going to build up the walls. He is going to restore the the army, and he is building up the very city in which God had put his name. But additionally, we see not only his political reforms, we see also his spiritual reforms in verses 15 through 17. We know that true repentance calls for biblical change, that when we turn to the Lord in faith, we are turning from sin and we are turning to righteousness. And we see that illustrated so clearly in the life of Manasseh. He is putting off his previous sins of covenant treachery, and he's putting on righteousness, faithful patterns of obedience. Verse 15 tells us that he also removed the foreign gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord. The word for remove means to turn away from. It means, in a spiritual sense, to depart. He is now outright rejecting his previous lifestyle. He's outright rejecting the idols that he once loved and cherished and followed. Not only did he remove the foreign gods and this idol from the house of the Lord, but he removed the altars which he had built in the courtyards. And notice what the text says. He says he, he threw them out. That is, he hurled them outside the city. He abandoned these idols. He turned from his previous ways. He left these to rot and their stench outside the city. In verse 16, not only did he put off sin, but he also put on Righteousness. Manasseh establishes pure worship to the Lord. Verse 16 says that he built up, he set back up the altar of the Lord. He sacrificed now the peace offerings, noting his new relationship with the Lord, that he is now at peace with God Almighty. He gives thanks offerings as well. This is a renewed heart, a new heart of faith. But he's not done yet. We see also at the end of 16, that he also ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. That now he is going to take up his role, his mantle as the shepherd king. He is going to lead his people to God where he used to mislead the people into iniquity. But not all is perfect. We see there at the end of verse 17. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Though Manasseh himself had personally experienced true revival, he could not undo the painful consequences of his sinful past. Right? Forty years of rebellion could not be done, undone overnight. As one commentator puts, it's much easier to lead people into sin than it is to, to bring them out of sin. Nevertheless, we see in Manasseh a changed life, a changed heart, one who now was given fully over to the worship and the love and the service of God, leading others to do the same. That brings us then to the last chapter, the last chapter of this biography of amazing grace. In verses 18 through 20, we see the product of grace. The product of grace. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin, his unfaithfulness and the sites on which he built high places and erected the ashram and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. And Ammon, his son, became king in his place. As the author concludes his biography of this man's life, what, what does he want his audience to go away from? What does he want his audience to go away with? Well, he focuses pretty straightforwardly that when the, the resume is put in, when, when everything is considered, when Manasseh's biography comes to a close, he wants to show us that Manasseh's life was a product of divine grace. That this is what God does to a man, to a nation who would humble themselves before God, turning from their sins and placing faith in Yahweh. That God delights to deal graciously with those who will humble themselves in repentance and faith. That was 
the message to post-exilic Israel, and that's the message for us today. Don't put off your sin like Manasseh did. Don't say, well, I'll get to it one day. I'll wait to the end of my life like Manasseh did. God will show me grace then. No, the New Testament says that today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day in which you need to flee from sin and turn to the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're not in Christ today, understand that today, this very day can become a biography of amazing grace for you. If you would turn from your sins and place faith in Jesus. And if you are in Christ, right, if, if you come here as a faithful follower of the Lord, in which I am confident that many of us are, we can rejoice. This is a, a sweet reminder for us of God's amazing grace in our lives. It's also a, an exhortation, right? An encouragement that nobody is too far gone. That prodigal child you may have, that heathen boss, those obnoxious neighbors across the street, nobody's too far gone. All of them are the next potential biographies in which God wants to write his story of amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, you are the good and gracious king, the holy one who has sent your son to die in our place so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, every one of us, every one of us deserve the other wrath and curse of God. But Lord, you have in your grace, in your kindness, from eternity past, chosen to set your love upon your people and to redeem them and to draw them into saving faith. Lord, let us go out rejoicing as a church in your grace. Let us go out telling and spreading to all the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those that come here tonight that do not know Christ, Lord, I pray that today will be the day in which they begin their, bio their biography of amazing grace. Amen.